But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his, his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The reading of God's word. Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that we have this, another remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus. And even as we celebrate this each week, as we gather, and as we celebrate in our hearts each and every day, as we experience your sanctification, the work of your Spirit, the hope we have, the solution for our lives, God, we give you praise and thanks and glory for what you have done. It speaks to the very essence of your nature, who you are as God, that you have loved us in Christ. And we want to glorify you this morning, God, in every way appropriate. We want to lift up your name. And Lord, we just want to come now with our concerns this morning, those things we have carried through the week, those burdens that we carry ourselves and have borne for each other, and we want to bring them to you, knowing that your work of salvation does not just end at freeing us from judgment, but also has us adopted into your family and cared for you intimately. And so, God, we bring our every need and concern before you this morning, knowing that you are faithful and that you are working all things for our good and your glory. God, we also come this morning with the, the need to repent now, maybe we can't think of something we've done specifically this week. Maybe we can, but Lord, we need to come and submit ourselves to Your Word, to humble ourselves before You, to own You as God, and submit to Your rulership. And so I pray that Your Spirit would do that in us this morning as we come in thanksgiving and repentance and joy for the good work of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The resurrection of our Lord 
is not some hypothetical event. It's not some philosophy that someone came up with. It is a historic event, and as Mark was saying, it is a necessary event for anything that we teach from God's Word to be of any value. It is this foundation of Christ and His finished work on the cross on which every other biblical doctrine has value and comes together to instruct us for our good, that we would be trained in righteousness. And in Romans, Paul begins to speak to a people group that has not yet realized all the ways in which Christ's work was the finished work for them. And so while he writes to a church that have all believed in Jesus, and you know, it wasn't a huge stretch to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead just in the the following years after so many had seen him. Nowadays, you might find a person or two who's uninformed and ignorant about things of history, and they could say, oh, you know, Jesus didn't really happen. That wasn't a thing that happened. But in those days, there was nobody saying it didn't happen. There was only people saying different reasons why it happened, different powers under which it came to pass. And so Paul uh, turns his attention once again in Romans to those who have a false confidence for salvation resting on their self-identity as the people of God to escape the judgment of God. And so he's going to apply now this foundational truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to a people that has thought of themselves as God's people. And so this section begins by identifying the target of Paul's diatribe all through chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew... Now, you have to understand that we think of this term very differently than they did in Paul's day. In terms of Old Testament history and the perspective from which Paul is writing, this is an honorific. This isn't an ethnic term, but an honorific distinguishing, uh, the, uh, denoting the people of God. It's a title. Those who possess the covenants of God, it's a magnificent heritage and the people from among whom Christ Jesus himself came. But Paul follows Jesus himself in keeping with the Old Testament pattern of identifying true Jewishness in spiritual terms, relativizing the significance of being an ethnic Jew and calling into question the ability of the Old Covenant to save at all. Jews, you see, viewed their ethnic descent from Abraham as a covenant advantage But Paul stresses that this advantage is nullified unless the law is obeyed. Perfect obedience is required of God's people. Now, how is that possible? We'll we'll get there. In the broad sweep of Romans, Paul will move from those who self-identify as God's people, who call themselves Jews, to those who will be identified by God as true Jews, Romans 2.29. That is, those who are children of Abraham by faith, Romans 4.16, and who, Romans 11.17, are grafted into Israel. And so we read again, verses 17 to 24, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, 
You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Study and memorization of God's law, the Torah, was central to Jewish piety. But much like many today, uh, they confused their intellectual proficiency with spiritual maturity. Many used their practice grasp of Scripture, their possession of it, to diminish their concern for their failure to keep its commands. They bragged about the law while failing to obey it. Now, the law would be of great benefit to Israel if they actually kept its commandments. But in chapter 7, we will learn that what the law doesn't do is enable people to obey it. It gives a good law. It gives great rules, rules to live by, things that would lead to a great outcome, but it did not enable them to actually do it. And in chapter 8, we will find out that the righteousness that is claimed by Paul's opponents is available only to, in those uh, whose heart is written the law by God's Spirit. God would have to do this. You know, that is, those of us that have been saved but grew up in church, there came a point in our lives where we said, I can't do this. God would have to do this. I can't be a good Christian on my own. In Romans 8, 3 to 4, it says, for, what, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, God's law requires perfect, perpetual obedience with a good attitude. And Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law so that the righteous requirements of the law would be fulfilled in us as we are in Christ. But Paul's dealing with a people group that hasn't yet fully understand how, understood sorry, how that applies directly to them. So he continues, verses 17 to 18, presenting a list of genuine advantages enjoyed by the Jewish people over and above all other nations. Verse 17 they possessed God's good law and could rely upon it and boast in God. Later in verse 23, Paul also refers to boasting in the law. In both instances, the problem is not with boasting, which can also be translated rejoicing. So you see, they're rejoicing in God or boasting in God, rejoicing in the law or boasting in the law. This was actually a commanded response to the goodness of God and of His commandments. So Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the criticism here is not for boasting or rejoicing, but for boasting and then failing to actually observe the law and thus for bringing dishonor, verse 24, on the God in whom they boast. 
in each of these benefits. The issue is not to call them into question, but how the Jews are responding to their covenant advantages. They have all these great advantages. What did they do with them? Two more benefits are listed in verse 18, to know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Again, these are true. These are to be construed positively. The law provides insight into God's will, and it enables those possessing it to genuinely approve of what is excellent. Paul's not saying here that the Jews were privy to the inscrutable will of God, the mysteries of His will, Ephesians 1.9. While there are many things about God's will that we cannot know, the point Paul is making here is that by possession possession of the law and the instruction it provides, those who have it can know God's will. They can know all of God's will in relation to the way that they should live and what God has revealed of His character. It is Psalm 119, verse 105, a lamp to their feet and a light for their path. But then in verses 19 to 20, Paul turns to the ministry that the Jews extended to the Gentiles by virtue of possessing these laws, verse 19, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. See, they really did have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They really could rightly discern the will of God. They really could approve what is excellent. And it might come across as though Paul is saying that the Jews were arrogantly thinking of themselves as a light to guide and teach others, but this was actually the role Israel was intended to have for the rest of the world. It was the command God gave Israel, and then it's the prophecy God gives through Isaiah that it will come to pass. In Isaiah 49, 6, God says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so the Jews rightly believed that they were to be a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. Isaiah 42, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, ultimately, these prophecies would only ever be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But Paul is not here questioning Israel's mandate that having the law, they themselves were to be teachers to the foolish and ignorant. He is questioning whether or not they have truly fulfilled their calling. They had the potential to do these things because they possessed the law, but they failed to accomplish the mission because they just plain failed to obey. Verse 21 and 22, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Despite all of the real advantages of the Jews, they have failed to live up to their calling. Paul does not object to the Jews teaching others. That is what they've been called to do. He questions whether they have violated the very law they treasure and have taught to others. 
He is zeroing in on the problem of hypocrisy, whereby we condemn in others the very things we do ourselves. And so there's four rhetorical questions asking whether the Jews practice what they preach. The lead question asks this directly, and then three following questions provide colorful examples of how they transgress the very law they proclaim. Uh, stealing, adultery, and robbing temples. Now, these are particularly blatant and shocking examples to illustrate the principle that Jews violated the very law that they possessed. He doesn't use, you know, more common examples. Like, he could, he could to, to rightly indict everyone, could say, well, you don't all love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, there's a sin that probably is common to all of you. Or he could say, you, you don't all love your neighbor as yourself all the time. And then again, everyone would have to be honest and say, yeah, you're right, we have failed to keep God's law. But instead of this, Paul uses these shocking examples of the worst sorts of behavior, behaviors that all Jews condemned. And it's not as though all Jews failed in these areas or that these sins were characteristic of the nation as a whole, but these extreme examples establish the point Paul is driving home that possession of the law has not prevented Jews from failing to abide by its key moral precepts, even those formulated in the Ten Commandments. So he's not arguing that all Jews break all the Ten Commandments. He's saying, look, even though you had the law, some Jews still do pretty horrific things. In fact, uh, a generation earlier, possibly something Paul's referring to here is there was a Jewish charlatan who professed to teach Moses' law but did not obey the law, and he had exploited Roman women, leading to a massive scandal in Rome. He he would teach the law, and then he would rob people. (laughs) He, He had convinced several Roman converts to make large financial contributions, which he would then take to the temple in Jerusalem. And then once he had gathered up all these riches that he was going to take to the temple in Jerusalem, he just absconded with them, kept them for himself, and thus robbing the temple and causing the name of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. In fact, uh, Josephus says that this was the reason that all the Jews were expelled from Rome. So not only did he uh, cause the the name of God to be blasphemed among the nations, but he he caused the the Jews considerable problems. So it's almost impossible that Paul's overlooking this fact. A Jew who is robbing temples despite having the law of God, despite knowing it enough that he was teaching people the law of God. So the point is not that all Jews commit these sins, but that these sins are representative of the contradiction between Jewish boasting and their actual conduct. Paul's graphically rendered point is simply that Jewish ethnicity or possession of the law cannot guarantee some sort of moral superiority. Now, the same charge can be leveled at Christianity today. Does calling yourself a Christian or even an evangelical Christian or a born-again Christian mean that you will be a moral person? Of course not. We all know terrible people who call themselves Christians. There are too many obvious examples of the worst sorts of people who take on the title. What about attending church or possessing a Bible on your bookshelf or night table? No! It's obvious 
that these external factors and one's self-identification have almost no bearing on whether someone is a genuine Christian. We all know far too many examples of bad people who claim to be good people, who claim to be Christ followers and are not. Understand Paul's point then here. Everyone knows someone who's a boastful Christian and has all the external trappings of a believer. They know the scriptures, and yet it is obvious to all that they are a self-serving individual with no genuine fruit of salvation. Why then would you take assurance from the fact that you call yourself a Christian and know God's word? See what Paul's pulling off here? He's indicting the worst sorts of Jews, pointing to them as an example of how the law, the possession of the law, and having been circumcised and having been called a Jew didn't really work. I do the same sort of thing when I talk to those who believe that baptizing a baby will make them a Christian. I go to all the examples I can think of of the worst sorts of people that were baptized as babies to make them a Christian. It didn't stick. It didn't work. Well, if you know in the case of that serial killer that, that bapti- baptism didn't save them, why are you relying on baptism to be your salvation? How do you know you're a Christian because you were baptized? In pointing out the worst examples of Jewish behavior, Paul is calling all believers to self-assessment according to the Word of God. You see, it was very common to think of these things as their membership ritual that, that got them in the door. They're now part of the people of God. I, I'm a Jewish male. I've been circumcised. We have the law. We go to our temple. I'm in. Well, then what do you need Jesus for? If you're already in, you don't need the Jewish Messiah. Sure, you believe that that he died and rose again. It's pretty obvious that that happened. Everyone around here sees it. But how come you need it? They had to know that none of this was saving them. Verse 23 and 24, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul draws the conclusion that the Jews dishonor God's name by transgressing the law. This conclusion contains the sharpest barb of all. It is the the pinnacle of the argument in this paragraph. This is a very painful statement made by the apostle that should cause every one of us great remorse. You know, as Christians, we are passionate about the glory of our God. And when our God is maligned, when His name is blasphemed because of those who call themselves Christians, right now we should all feel remorse of that. In Matthew 23.3, Jesus confronts those who preached but do not practice. R.C. Sproul wrote this. He says, People expect church members to be perfect when the one absolute prerequisite for joining the church is the admission that one is not perfect. The only organization I know which demands that you be a sinner in order to join it is the Christian church. So it shouldn't surprise anybody to see Christians sin, but there is a specific sin of hypocrisy. So it is not as though all sin is hypocrisy. We all have sins of many kinds. I love the song we sing this morning. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. 
His mercy is more. But to know God's righteous command, to teach it and expect adherence from others, and then to fail to obey it ourselves drags God's name through the mud. This embarrassment has long been an issue among the people of God. The Jews were given the law so that their lives would bring honor and glory to God's name, but instead their behavior, despite knowing what they themselves approved as excellent behavior, brought scorn and dishonor to the name of the Lord. This quotation of Paul's is remarkably close to Isaiah 52.5, where Isaiah is speaking of the Jews' Babylonian captivity, during which time God's name had been blasphemed among the Gentiles. The people suffered exile in Babylon because of their sin, but God's response to this defamation of His name was good news of deliverance. Good news being the term from which we derive the word gospel. Isaiah 52, I'm going to read verses 7 and 10 for the sake of time. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who makes or brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, according to Paul, in Romans, the salvation of God had come in the good news or gospel about Jesus Christ. But many of his Jewish contemporaries had rejected this message. Even if they believed in Jesus, they were still in some way hoping for deliverance through the law and the Old Covenant. But that covenant had led only to judgment, not salvation. And so Paul's arguments are, are sharpened and continued in the final section here of our passage, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The sign of God's covenant with Israel was taken on the bodies of every male, designating them and their offspring after them as belonging to the Lord. It was a sign of their promise to practice the law of God. And for many Jews during Paul's period, circumcision had come to, to virtually guarantee salvation. One rabbi famously wrote, "'No person who is circumcised will go down to hell.'" So, pretty strong assurance for Jewish men anyways. Women, we're not quite sure what's going to happen with them. But men, all the Jewish men we know, they're going, not going to go to hell. But Paul argues, in accordance with the Old Testament itself, that the covenant sign of circumcision is only beneficial if one actually keeps the law. 
Now, this is not to say that the Old Testament saints all kept the law perfectly so that they could stay within the covenant. But when they would sin, although, you know, like I said, God's law requires perfect, perpetual, what's the last one? Personal obedience, perfect, perpetual, personal obedience, obedience with a good attitude. It's not, God did require this, and not anyone kept this, but God would accept in their place an animal sacrifice as it foreshadowed, Hebrews 10.10, the once for all offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And so we know that although they were not perfectly and perpetually obedient in the Old Covenant, Old Testament saints could look forward to the sacrifice of Christ who was perfectly obedient on our behalf. There was no demand for personal perfect obedience or else they were out because there was a ritual by which they could come and receive forgiveness for sins. The sacrifice of a lamb or a goat. But Paul now demands perfect obedience from those who desire to live under the old covenant now that the new covenant has arrived. The only way for sins to be forgiven now is through the death of of Christ. The only means of atonement is the cross of Christ. And so shockingly, Paul makes the startling claim that failure to obey the law places Jews in the same category as uncircumcised Gentiles. He says, if if you who are circumcised disobey the law, you become uncircumcised. Now, there is actually Old Testament precedence for this statement. Disobedience, any disobedience, invalidates Jewish circumcision. Paul then teaches that Jews who were circumcised and, but didn't keep the law were unsaved. They were uncircumcised in God's sight, and that, thus not part of the people of God. Sobering words for Jews who felt so secure in their status before God. On the other hand, Gentiles who do not bear in their bodies the covenant sign can nevertheless show themselves to be a part of God's covenant people through obedience to His commands. Their obedience, despite being physically uncircumcised, will be regarded as true circumcision, for it shows the circumcision of the heart done by God among both male and female alike. And so Christians don't have a particular bent to which gender can have more assurance. It's your heart circumcised. Later, Paul is going to make it clear that only those who have died with Christ, united with Him in His death and resurrection, will be dead to sin, and only those who have died to sin and self can keep the law's requirements. True obedience can only flow from faith in Jesus Christ. But for now, he continues to build the case that the gospel he preaches does not promote sin. On the contrary, it is a gospel that calls for faith in Christ, a faith that inevitably leads to obedience. And that obedience demonstrates that although a person does not carry the covenant sign of circumcision, they don't have a Jewish bloodline, but the, the transformation that has led to obedience clearly reveals that he or she is a member of the people of God, all who have circumcised hearts. And we've been writing this for a while, and we will continue as we work through Romans, because this is one of Paul's main messages. How do you know that you are 
a true believer? How do you know you are part of the people of God? What is a true Jew? Someone whose heart has been changed. And this is evidenced in their transformed living. Paul is also going to make the case that there is no, now no longer any separating factor between the Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome. This is another one of the big themes of Romans that's going to keep on coming up all the way through. There cannot be two churches of Jesus Christ. There cannot be two bodies. There cannot be two baptisms. There are not two spirits. There is one body in Christ, the church. And so Paul's hitting this from every which way, that Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome must be totally unified. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Galatians 3.28, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Paul concludes his argument in our passage with an all-out assault on Jewish exceptionalism. Romans 2.28-29, remember these are Paul's words, not mine. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So no saving advantage exists in being physically circumcised and possessing the law. These markers of being a Jew in Paul's day. To be an ethnic Jew or to be physically circumcised does not mean that one is truly a Jew or truly circumcised. Any notion that the Jews could rely on the Old Covenant for salvation is totally undermined here. There's no going back. There's only going forward. You can't go back to the old. It's obsolete. It's outdated. It's finished. Turn only to Christ. There's only one way unto salvation. No one will come to the Father outside of through Jesus Christ. There are not today two peoples of God. There is not today some sort of exceptional group that is especially the people of God. For all must be grafted in through Christ Jesus, who is the only way. Being a Jew is not based on outward things like circumcision or ethnic heritage at all. Instead, a true Jew is a person, male or female, whose heart is bent on following God. Such a person has a circumcised heart. Such a person has been inwardly transformed by the Spirit of God through the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation, something that the law could never do. We see that there developed in the history of Israel a belief that circumcision, the sacred rite by which was the sign of the Old Testament covenant, was all it took to be saved. We have very similar confusions in the Christian church today, where some people believe that they are automatically guaranteed salvation by some rite or some response. I was listening to a fellow yesterday who grew up in the church. He figured... A, a, safe estimate was that he had given his life to Jesus 75 or 100 times. I'm sure I blew that out of the water. There's no right or response that guarantees our salvation. This passage refutes any thought that one gains membership into the people of God by baptism, whether infant or otherwise, 
or that any other rite of passage can grant us assurance of salvation. It's not your baptism. It's not your, your first communion. It's not your confirmation. It's not the time you asked Jesus into your heart. It's not the time you came down to an altar somewhere. It's not the camp that you went to. It's not the youth conference that you responded at. It is, do I have a circumcised heart? This passage refutes these things. The New Testament counterpart to circumcision in the old is is not baptism or any other thing which can be accomplished by human choice or by human hands. And so when some believe that baptism is the New Testament version of Old Testament circumcision, this passage proves them 100% wrong. Because the New Testament circumcision is not baptism or anything that we can accomplish by our choice or by our hands, but is circumcision of the heart, which can be accomplished only by God. I'm going to leave you with Colossians 2, 11 to 15. In Christ Jesus our Lord, He begins earlier, you who were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, but by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, you have been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for such a wonderful victory in Christ Jesus. He is our champion. He stood in our place. He won our war. He offered the sacrifice we could not give. And Lord, forgive us for all the areas in which we have thought we could somehow add something to that. Because when we add anything to the gospel, it's no gospel at all. May we rest this morning finally in the finished work of Christ Jesus who won the victory by His blood shed for us, His body given on our behalf and in our place. Lord, I ask that Your Spirit would sanctify us in the truth that we've looked at this morning, that we would mull this over repeatedly and think on what it means to truly be the people of God. And on what have we put our assurance? Do this work in us so that we would glorify you rather than to bring you shame. In Jesus' name, amen.